Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's a people's voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movements. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. And good morning, listeners. Welcome to 3CR. This is Green Enough Radio Breakfast. It's Friday morning. It's 7 a.m. It's the afterglow of International Women's Day. And, yeah, respect to all of the staunch sisters out there fighting for equality and dignity. Hmm. Yeah, so I just um, just give a quick report on... Um, well, actually, before we... Um, go on to kind of the news. I'd like to acknowledge um, that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you um, from the wandering land of the Kulin Nation. Um, pay our respect to elders past and present and that, you know, sovereignty was never ceded and that this was and always will be Aboriginal land. Indeed. Uh, by the way, this is Zane and that's Jacob. Yeah. So we have a bit of a, a pretty packed program today. We're going to have an interview with uh, Daniela Fury, if I'm pronouncing his last name correctly. He's like a regular writer for Green Left Weekly and from formerly from Italy. Well, he's still from Italy. Um, he's just doing a PhD in Australia. Um, but yeah, he, uh, he writes regularly about Italian politics and Italy just had an election recently. So we're going to go have a bit of a chat with him about what's happening there. And on 7.45am, we're going to be having an interview um, with someone, I think her name is Susan. Yes, uh, Sister Susan Connolly. Uh, she's a sister of St. Joseph, uh, which is a, a strand of the Catholic faith, I believe. Uh, and she's done a lot of work with the East Timorese or the Timor-Less community over the years. And, yeah, she'll be talking with us about the recent redrawing of the maritime borders between Australia and East Timor Mm. and what that means for East Timor's oil resources because Mm. ever since they got independence in 2002, that's been a big issue is what's going to happen with that, Mm. um, yeah, the oil resources which are in East Timor's territory. It's one of the poorest countries in the region. Australia's a rich country but nonetheless... Australia keeps trying to get their freaking oil resources. Not very nice. Mm. And um, the next, uh, the last interview will be we'll be talking to Robin Murphy, who is a longtime feminist activist. Probably having a bit of a chat with her about the significance of International Women's Day and the particular struggles that she has um, been part of. Yeah, I think we're mainly going to focus uh, when we talk to Robin about the uh, Jobs for Women project. Mm. Uh, which documents the struggle throughout, mostly throughout the 1980s, I think, kind of, it's got its link to the 70s, but mainly through the 80s and, and into the early 90s. It was a big fight for women to be able to work at the steelworks in Illawarra. Hmm. And uh, that was ultimately successful and it was a big fight and a very significant uh, victory so, and they're making a feature film, and the short film's really inspiring. So, yeah, it's going to be amazing, this feature film. 
and they've been plugging away. They just had a fundraiser recently. So, yeah, we'll have a bit of a chat to Robin about that. So stay tuned, people. Yeah. Um, so I guess now talking about um, what's in the headlines, the news, well, you know, International Women's Day actually technically isn't over for a, a lot of countries around the world. And so there's actually a number of marches and so on happening in other countries at the moment, especially the United States. And in fact, in the United States, um, just a bit of good news story. Um, this sort of happened in the past week or so, but... Um, Teachers in West Virginia, um, or led by the kind of rank and file of the teacher, because the teachers union bureaucracy really wasn't for this, were basically, you know, had a you know day long strike um, happening a week, happening over a week um, over the past week. Um, the teachers went on strike in um, to fight for a pay raise, and they have actually won that pay raise for across the state, a five percent incre- um, pay increase. Uh, in fact, this um, richly significant in the context of the fact that you know a number of teachers um, organised themselves. They led the, led the struggle, and they had the support from you know the broader community and so on, and managed to win a a five percent um, pay increase in in a Republican dominated state. Mm. And didn't the union leadership sort of tell them, "Oh well, we, you know we can't get this, so you know no use going on strike," and then the members. Uh, ignored the union leadership and went on strike anyway? Yes, that's exactly what happened. So it was a a rank-and-file-led effort that was organised independently of the union bureaucracy. (laughs) So um, um, you can read quite a bit about that. Um, There is an article now in Green Left Weekly up online, and there's also a lot of stuff on the strike in um, the Jacobin magazine. Mm. And I'm sure in the US as here... Um, teaching is a profession that's dominated more by women than men. Yes. So that's an important struggle for women as well as it is for workers. Yes. Um, and it, um, on International Women's Day, stuff that's happening internationally, um, um, the women of Spain basically, I think as of now, are taking, pl- um, are taking part in a national strike to combat wage inequality and gender um, violence. And for 20, and this is read, reading from an article, from 24 hours, women are being called on to drop everything from briefcases to brooms and take on take to the streets and protests. Um, in terms of, you know, what, uh, what some of the background for this is, um, the strike has received endorsement from Madrid and Barcelona mayors and from two of Spain's largest unions, um, which is the Workers' Commission and the General Union of Workers. And, of course, they have both called workers to stage two two-hour strikes um, protest wage inequities between men and women. And, of course, um, according to a poll, um, the feminist strike has the support of 82% of all Spaniards who believe there are sufficient motives for women to, um, to protest discrimination in the home and the workplace. And, of course, one of the reasons is the strike is an effort to end the macho culture that 80% of Spaniards feel pervades Spanish society, uh, you know, um, women are taking aim at the salary gap, domestic violence, and sexual harassment that occurs as a result of this culture. Um, women in Spain earn 12.7% less per an hour in comparison to their male counterparts while working the same jobs and completing similar tasks. Um, the inequalities go beyond the workplace. Women spend 26.5 hours on unpaid work, such as caring for children or other family members. 
So that um, so you know these demonstrations are going to be taking place across different parts of Spain, which I think at this point are currently happening. And in fact, got a message um, from a comrade in Spain um, that you know he said along along lines that there's over five million women who are on strike. Massive demos everywhere from big cities to small towns, and every kind of TV channel is talking about feminism. Um, there's roving pickets intersections um, in our uh, in our village you know the pp um which i think is the party the popular party it's like the equivalent of the conservative party. yeah yeah so the popular party which is equivalent to liberals that's um what this comrade said is um office is covered in you know basically messages written by different women so um probably politically based kind of messages coin them out on on particular issues so yeah that's um just happened in spain and you know which is quite exciting you go i i kind of think you know imagine if something like that happened in australia which mm. does seem so far away because you know the biggest thing we had in australia is we had a big rally i mean which was good but it sort of didn't shake the foundations of society if you know what i mean whereas mm. this whole the, the effects of this strike seem to have you know basically put out put a real sort of change the whole tone of the day Mm. yeah like i think spain has a bigger population than australia but that's probably the equivalent of you know a million women going on strike here that would probably be the biggest strike of any kind in in some time Mm. if that was to happen in australia Mm. now some other um particular um Something else I wanted to talk about, actually, and you know, this is all, all, all relates, I think, to International Women's Day. Um, just to talk a bit about what's happening in um, in the Labor Party in the UK. Now, this is a bit of a good news story, but basically, there's been this whole kind of debate, um, quite a toxic debate, actually, about um, whether you know women who self-identify as women should which is usually refers to trans women um should be allowed to participate in um shortlists um i think for positions in the labor in the labor party uh and there's been a very you know a very strong there's a very a, a minority um who are basically turfs basically arguing that they shouldn't um just for listeners that acronym is trans exclusive radical feminist yep so there's been a a kind of section of them who have been making a lot of attacks on trans women in the labor party Mm. however the labor party leadership um coming from jeremy corbyn have just made it very clear what their position is and that is we support trans women if um any uh, any woman who self-identifies woman has the right to participate has the right to run for a woman shortlist because they are women etc like there's no ambiguity about anything that corbyn said mm. um and even said this you know seeing it like it's a very respectful thing to say he said oh yes people are entitled to their views um and then basically said what well, but we don't accept you know transphobia or any discriminationary or hate speech mm. towards trans people in um in the labor party and so now as a result of the labor party leadership's clear position on this um a group of you know anti-trans activists in the Labour Party have apparently staged some kind of mass resignation from the Labour Party. Mm. So that's actually probably a positive news story. <laughs> um, yeah. So, But also I think, I think what the political significance of it is, well, is it actually, you know, kind of, I mean, I, I can't say enough good things about Corbyn, but it's sort of like the more you seem to hear about Corbyn, the more you, 
you like you like him, and I think he's he's proven himself to be actually be very strong on women's issues, and especially he even especially so, um, has shown expressed support for both sex workers and trans women is I think really very significant. Mm. Um, and I mean, w- one of the interesting things on his support of sex workers is he's actually got tried to get scandalised by the mainstream media for it. And but then he went and just said, "No, I stand by position. I think I basically think sex workers should have rights. No, mm. no, no, full stop. There's no ambiguity about any of the kind of clear principled positions that um, Jeremy Corbyn is pushing." Mm. Yeah, it's good that he doesn't back down in that situation. Yeah, and no, we were talking about this on the way here this morning. Um, this idea that uh, to be a woman you must have a uterus or ovaries or whatever and that, that's like the defining thing um, what about women who are born without a functioning uterus or what it, there's, there's many examples of, of you know cisgendered women um, who who you know they're not capable of having children does that mean they're not they're not real women in inverted commas mm. I, I think it's just it's uh once you follow that kind of line of thinking and says, oh, being a woman is de- de- defined by your ability to have children, you very quickly get into very murky territory where it's like, well, what about these multiple examples? Are, are these people not real women? Mm. Hmm. A slippery slope indeed. No, it's, that's great to see. And... um um, Kamala Emanuel, who we had on two weeks ago to talk about um, abortion rights in Tasmania and New Zealand, uh, she pulled out of speaking at the Brisbane International Women's Day rally uh, because there was going to be transphobic speakers on the platform there and she was not comfortable no one was talking about this, and so she's kind of taken a principled position. So like, look, I'm not going to speak on a, on a platform where there's going to be transphobic speakers. So, yeah, it's um, good on you, Kamala. All right, we might go to uh, an announcement, and then we, I think we might try and get uh, Daniela Fulvi on the line to talk to us about Italy where there's been uh, some pretty ugly stuff happen in the elections that just happened there at the weekend. Join the Palm Sunday Walk for Justice and add your voice to the call for change to refugee policy. Demand Australia's political leaders to abandon the current harsh and unjust policies and provide permanent protection for refugees. Stand with people from all over Melbourne. Demand the evacuation of Manus and Nauru and end the cruelty. Meet at the State Library of Victoria on the 25th of March at 1.30pm. Palm Sunday Walk for Justice is a 3CR supporter. Alrighty, welcome back. You are listening to 3CR. And this is Green Left Radio. It is Friday morning. It is 17 minutes past seven. And on the line, we have got um, Daniele Fulvi, uh, who is going to speak with us about um, the 
uh, elections that have just happened in Italy uh, at the weekend, and I guess the general context, um, the general political situation in uh, Italy. So thank you, Daniela. Thank you, and good morning, everyone. Okay, so um, Daniela, I guess um, the first question we kind of wanted to ask you is, um, what um, can you give us a bit of background about um, what are kind of the main kind of, of the political situation in Italy, and then we kind of ask, and then we'll move on to asking a bit of a question about you know the, what's happened around the elections. Yeah, um, well, these elections have been very, very um, a very important moment for our recent political history, because in the last few months, the social tension and social hatred have raised very much. There have been lots of violence and uh, dangerous rays of neo-fascism. Uh, yeah, uh, there, there have been lots of tension and clashes between you know, fascist and anti-fascist forces. And basically, the last government uh, has been unable to, <clears throat> to to stop and prevent the fascist rally to happen, uh, despite the fact that in Italy anti-fascism is constitutional, plus there are lots of national laws that are prohibiting you know, the promotion or the support of fascism or religious and racial discrimination and those kind of things. But we are uh, facing an almost unprecedented rise of of neo-fascism in Italy. And even an endorsement by traditional political parties like center-right parties, for, for instance, Forza Italia, which is the Berlusconi's party, but also the Northern League, which has now become a nationalist and reactionary party, which is basically gathering the neo-fascist sentiment and fact supporting and funding as well uh, those you know, fascist movements, which are basically um, threatening the whole democratic system, both in Italy and Europe. They also have lots of supporters, like in France, for instance, where Marine Le Pen, Front National, is strongly supporting and funding them as well. Uh, so they were also very, very good at exploiting the situation of, you know, popular discontent with, uh, with the rise of poverty and, and unemployment, uh, because the last government has not been very good on those issues. They deprived the workers of lots of fundamental rights, like the right to strike, or they imposed the workers a uh, huge wage uh, cut on a national scale, uh, plus the education reform has been very um, protested by both the right and the left because they're trying to privatize schools and healthcare as well. So all this situation has brought to a rise of you know racist sentiments, neo-fascist sentiments, and nationalist sentiments, and of social tension and hatred in general, and the result of the election clearly shows that. Hmm. Um, and, Daniele, what, uh, so what is the likely outcome of the election, and can you tell us a bit more about these far-right uh, parties like the Northern League and the, uh, yeah. the Five Star Movement? Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, the thing is that uh, after the elections, considering the results, uh, at the moment no one holds the numbers to, to form a new government uh, alone. So the situation is very complicated and puzzling somehow. Uh, the center-right coalition is the first one with like more than 37% of the vote, but you need at least 40 to form a government. And the center-right coalition is now led by, by the Northern League, which is a far-right party led, led by, <coughs> by Matteo Salvini. Uh, but first party uh, outside of the coalition is the Five Star Movement, who won like more than 32 percent of the vote, and it's yeah basically an anti-establishment movement, um, you know, founded and on, on popular discontent. Um, and the, also another thing is that this was the worst defeat of all time. For, for the Italian left, both the moderate left and the radical left. Uh, the Democratic Party, uh, which used to lead the, the last government, uh, won only the 19%, and the whole center-left coalition won only the 22%. Uh, yeah, plus, the, I mean, left was split during this election, so there was even another party called Free and Equal, which... Uh, which is a progressive party, basically. Um, but they won only 3%, which was the minimum quota to, to enter the parliament. And uh, plus there was another radical left party called Power to the People, who just won 1.2% of the vote. But I would say that this is a good exception in the, in the scenario of the Italian left, because it was kind of half a miracle, meaning that this movement was born only four months ago, and it's the only one who had in its political agenda some radical left policies like um, stopping with the privatization of healthcare or, or schools and making them public again, um, restoring workers' rights and women's rights and LGBTQI rights and all this kind of, of radical stuff. And they run an electoral campaign with no money and with no visibility on the media. So. It's a good starting point, I would say, for the for the Italian left. But the thing is that, as I, as I said, uh, as things stand now, no one has the number to to form a new government. And uh, at this point, the president of the republic will have to to nominate the, the prime minister. But it's going to be a very very hard choice, and um, the situation is very thorny um, because. Of course, the president has to choose someone who is able to grant a majority in both houses of the parliament. And uh, at this moment, no one seems to be willing of forming alliances. So it's very tricky. Um, because the thing is that he could, uh, he could nominate um, Salvini, who is the leader of the Northern League, or Mayo, who is the leader of the Five Star Movement. Um, and actually, if Five Star Movement and League um, would form an alliance, they would have more than 50% of the seats in the parliament. But this is very hard to happen because um, because they both want to be the prime minister, basically. So no one, no, no one of them is going to support a government which is not 
led by himself, you know. Mm. Um, so the thing is that um, Salvini radically excluded any 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 coalition with five stars or Democrats who radically criticize him. On the contrary, Di Maio from the five star movement, he seemed to be a bit, uh, he seemed to be a bit more receptive when it comes to alliances, uh, as long as his eventual allies will support the five star movement agenda. Um, but the Democrats, who are basically the one who could decide which government to support, like their votes can be decisive for the formation of a new government, are being very, very stubborn, I would say, because like the secretary of the Democratic Party, who, who is Matteo Renzi, is the former prime minister as well, mm. um, he is, he, rather than conceding the defeat and resigning, has he should, he's basically saying that he would not resign until the new government is formed because he don't want the Democratic Party to support any government led by the Five Star or the Northern League uh, because, you know, they were mm. very strong critical of, of him during the electoral campaign. Mm. Um, so the thing is that the situation is, again, very, very puzzling and uncertain and going to take a very long time for Italian to to have a new government um, because now the negotiations are on so um, we still have no idea what would happen uh, maybe Berlusconi's party who won just the 14 percent uh, within the, the center-right coalition maybe he could support some sort of five-star movement government but it's still very very uncertain hmm. um, <clears throat> I think um there was a somewhat similar situation after the German elections where it took ages for negotiations to happen and the Christian Democrats in Germany, they did not want to be seen to be forming government with the AFD, the far right. Is this similar for Berlusconi's party? Do they uh, not want to be associated with the fascists or are they more open to this? Well, yeah, it's, it's not very different actually. Um, the thing is that Berlusconi had a important seat in this election because before that he used to be the leader of the Italian right, but mm. now the Northern League uh, has more votes than Forza Italia. So, in fact, Salvini is the new leader of the Italian right and he's, he's the rising star of the European right as well. So, um, the thing is that Berlusconi's party. Um, has now uh, a smaller voice, I would say, in the Italian scenario. Mm. His vote, like he's mm, the member of the parliament of Forza Italia, can be still important for the formation of the new government. Um, and actually, when it comes to fascism, uh, no, they didn't dissociate themselves from fascism. Uh, Berlusconi as well as Salvini. They are actually uh, sometimes defending fascists and accusing the anti-fascists to be the new fascists, meaning that they, they think that despite the Italian constitution clearly says that you know, fascism is not allowed and uh, the fascist party cannot be reformed and refound in any way, they are just, they're, 
I mean, they keep continuing saying that we should defend the right of fascists to express their political ideas and political opinions. So if someone criticizes them or opposes this, as anti-fascists do, they are anti-democratic and not the fascists. So, yeah, no, they're not... Mm, they are actually supporting the rise of neo-fascism. And uh, as I told you before, um, the Northern League is actually gathering this neo-fascist sentiment. And I think that lots of people in Italy with fascist tendencies prefer voting for the League, for instance, or for Forza Italia, because they are still sympathetic with neo-fascism, so with uh, racist policies or... Uh, nationalist policies, but they don't carry with themselves the weight of history, you know, because they're not openly fascist. Yeah, okay. Um, and, but also the fascist movement, actually, they keep saying that uh, fascism and communism are something that belong to the past, so even anti-fascism is not a political value which is which can be used today. It has to be overcome as well. Um, so this is very dangerous, I would say, for what is left of uh, you know democracy and social justice in Italy. Mm. Uh, because if you if you let fascists, like if you legitimate fascism in any way, uh, you mm. know social, social democracy and social justice could just be wiped out in a minute, mm. and. The worst thing about that, in my opinion, is that uh, not only all the governments mm, are ignoring the fact that fascism is inconstitutional, but they're also allowing neo-fascist movements to run for the elections. There were two fascist parties running for the elections on last Sunday. I mean, they went beyond 0.5%, but the thing is that they both were run. They were allowed to run for the elections, and this is inconstitutional. Hmm. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and... and Oh, yeah. So, so do you think... Uh, were you yeah. going to say something? Yeah, I was going to ask the question, I guess, because we're getting a bit low on time. Um, now, you know, in light of kind of all this, sort of, you know, this kind of leads into the question, what are sort of the prospects... Um, for the kind of left in Italy um, in terms mm-hmm. of coming out of this election and the kind of, you know, rise of the far right? Yeah, well, um, as I told you, the left had uh, the worst defeat in history and is facing a very, very deep crisis, especially the centre-left and the moderate left. Um, I would say that one thing that the left has had to consider has to consider now um, is that uh, the movement power to the people is showing you know a good way to to make politics today meaning that uh, the left now should definitely give up you know moderate politi- moderate agendas and you know compromise policies and go back to, to radicalism. That's the only way how, I mean, that's the only way in which the left could go back and have a leading and important role in the Italian political scenario. Because these elections sent a clear message to, to the whole country. These elections have, have 
has been won by fear and racism, and all the political class has been defeated in, like, total defeat. Um, indeed, uh, both Di Maio and Salvini, they are very young, like, Di Maio is 31 and Salvini is 40. So people is, you know, willing for a renewal of the Italian political class. And also they want a radical rupture with the, with the old mm, politics of compromise and of and the old moderate policies. And power to the people, despite, despite they want only 1.2% of the vote, clearly shows that when you go back to radicalism and you go back to, you know, total people and deal with everyday people problem, um, this works. This works. But we also have lots of examples even around Europe. Like, think of Mélenchon in France. Think of uh, Esquerda Unida in Spain. Think of Portugal, where the left is governing. Think of Corbyn. Hmm. Um, so that's the model the Italian left has to follow. Hmm. Uh, and I'm including free and equal as a democrat in this. Um, the important thing is now to, again, go back to radicalism and give up compromises and moderate policies. Mm. And even when it comes to, to, to the rise of neo-fascism, uh, um, power to the people and free and equal were, were very clear during the electoral campaign on this issue um, because they say that, they, mm, that Italy must, like the government, must dissolve all these neo-fascist organizations and, you know, seize all their properties and money and use them for, for social purposes, like buying houses, hospitals, or whatever. Uh, but because, just because they're inconstitutional. So, uh, you know, if you, if you are part of the Italian government, you can't let this happen, basically. And uh, no matter if you're from a right-wing party or a left-wing party, you just have to, you know, apply the constitution. Um, so, yeah, um, even in this sense, you have to give up compromises and, moder- and moderatism and just go back to, again, to radicalism, even when you are acting against neo-fascists. Hmm. Mm. All right. Well, it seems to be a bit of a common story across Europe and across the world, this need to walk away from uh, neoliberal politics of compromise and uh, get back to something a bit more radical. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, thanks heaps for speaking with us, uh, Daniele, and uh, yeah, we might get you back on uh, for some updates about this uh, in the future. All right. Well, thank you. Cheers. All right, um, Daniele Fulvi there, um, who's currently in Australia studying uh, and talking to us about the elections in Italy and what this means for, um, yeah, for class forces in Italy and and for the people. It's uh, yeah, pretty scary to see the far right gaining so much in the elections there, but uh, yeah, green shoots of uh, some fight back in in power to the people. So. All right, we're just going to play an announcement and then we will uh, have some news for you. And then coming up pretty soon, we've got Sister Susan Connolly, who's going to talk to us a bit about Timor Lest. Um, basically, there is an there is an article right now. Um, this isn't the latest issue um, that's in print on for Green Left Weekly um, about you know about 
basically Mia Sanders um, kind of examining the kind of horrors and um, of hazing and and of and sexual violence in Sydney colleges, which I imagine would be kind of a universal kind of thing across a lot of different universities mm. um, in Australia. And this is kind of based on a damning new investigative um, report, which is you know details this kind of horrible kind of misogynist harassment, sexual violence, and the kind of dangerous um, hazing rituals that take place in the sandstone walls of the most prestigious of Sydney residential colleges. Um, Investigators reviewed almost 90 years of news um, um, paper reporting on University of Sydney college scandals, and the the report found that the evidence um, that current traditions date back several decades. And, of course, one of the interesting things, this report, you know, um, goes... um, coincides with this um, campaign to end rape on campus, which was launched on February 26th to coincide with the University O-Week, you know, which is known as the most dangerous year of week of the year to be a woman on campus. You know, one in eight attempted and completed sexual assaults women experience in the Sydney Universal Colleges occur during this week. And according to this report, one in 12... Um, women college students will experience attempted or um, or rape during their time at college, but they are never as much in danger as in the first week of term. And so, yeah, this is um, – I won't be able to go into full detail on all the article, but, you know, um, Mia goes in, into kind of detail about how the university management kind of bureaucracy kind of fails to kind of address um, the problem. Um, she paints a bit of a picture of the kind of types of behaviour that um, is inflicted on a woman. Um, and then also there's this kind of strong link between, you know, between these hazing um, rituals and, you know, sexual assault. Mm. Yeah, so that's um that's kind of like um a bit of the detail there, and I think there is um there is a petition going around on fair agenda, basically kind of calling on the federal education minister to actually take serious action on you know ending this kind of culture of of sexual harassment and assault on campuses, and one of those one of the main demands is to basically you know basically for to implement systems in place for these universities to actually address um, address the problem. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I've been listening to some of the coverage around this and it's like, it's not like there's someone in the university hierarchy saying, oh, you know, we're going to have these hazing rituals. Hmm. It's more they're not taking it seriously and it's like it's a, it's a socially repro- reproduced um, type of, of misogyny. Uh, that that happens these hazing rituals and so what needs to happen is that cycle of every year these hazing rituals of new people being indoctrinated and then repeating it again the next year that cycle needs to be broken mm. and once that can be broken it will kind of die out yeah and there hasn't been that decisive action to say this this shit is absolutely not cool and you're not allowed to do this. Mm. And I think it's it's quite no not dissimilar to um, to how a culture of say bullying develops in um, in the school system. Uh, you know, you know, need action needs to be intervention needs to happen early. Mm. Yeah, and I think we've seen big changes over the last decade with the equal marriage campaign and a lot more acceptance. Still a long way to go, but a lot more acceptance. Of, of the LGBTIQ community coming out of this equal marriage campaign, a lot more awareness, uh, and it's like there needs to be a similar thing around um, 
you know, respect and and consent on campuses. Um, hmm. I think it's getting, we'll probably play a quick announcement and get on to our second interview for the program. All right, welcome back. Uh, this is Green Left Radio on 3CR and on the line this morning to talk about uh, Timor-Leste and the redrawing of maritime boundaries between that country and Australia. Uh, we have Sister Susan Connolly, who is a sister of St. Joseph, which is a strand of the Catholic uh, faiths. Uh, welcome, Susan. Oh, thanks very much, and good morning to you. Mm. Cheers. So um, if you could talk to us a little bit, what, what's your background, actually, Sister Susan, um, with, with East Timor, Timor-Leste? Uh, what, what's your kind of connection with that part of the world? Well, um, look, I, I had the happiness of going to East Timor in 1996. June 1996 was my first um, a trip up there. We Sisters of St Joseph have a, a work up there where we were invited by the Bishop, Bishop Bellow, to go and uh, to do something about the main local language, Tetum. At that time, Timor was, um, had been, was, in, was occupied by Indonesia, which had invaded uh, the territory in 1975. And the people's culture was sort of being overtaken by Indonesian language and culture. And so the bishop wanted the support for the language because language is so important to people's identity. So that's where I went. And I've been going up to Timor for... for um, for all those years intervening, and um, it's been a great blessing to me, I can tell you. Yeah, cool. Um, now, just in the last few days, we've seen um, representatives from Timor-Leste and from Australia signing a new deal regarding the maritime boundary between Australia and uh, Timor-Leste. Can you tell us a bit about what that deal uh, does mean and what it has uh, not, what what it is looking at and what it's not looking at, I guess. Sure thing, yes, yes. Uh, look, it, it is, it's a landmark um, uh, deal, really. It's wonderful. Uh, and it, uh, it sets the border between uh, Australia and Timor-Leste. Now, of course, we know that the two nations are very close together. So international standard dictates that when nations are so close together, the border between them should be at the median line or halfway. And we Australians know how fair that is. You know, you go half halfway. So that actually has been set on that part of the border which runs parallel to the two coastlines. So that's okay. It's um, pretty well at the median. That's good. But because... Timor's coastline is so much uh, is, is so um, so much smaller than Australia's. There have to be two other lines called the laterals. Now, the western lateral is just a straight line, no problem. But the eastern lateral, well, it's, it looks like a bit of a dog's hind leg, actually. And um, I was a bit surprised to see it. But however, the Timorese are quite happy. Uh, the the implication of this. Um, strange line is that it runs through uh, a huge oil and gas reserve called Greater Sunrise. Now this has been a, a real sticking point between our two nations because originally when, um, uh, when Timor became free 
uh, Australia had said, uh, as unfortunately the Australian government can do, we'll give you uh, 50% of Greater Sunrise and we'll have 50% of Greater Sunrise. Now, that was a bit of an advance because earlier Australia had said, you can have 18% and we'll have 82%. So the 50-50 split was a bit of a... It's a bit better, but unfortunately, uh, there are allegations that Australia actually spied on Timor during the negotiations over that 50-50. Now, once that was made made public in 2013, uh, the Timorese government said we we really need to get this. our sovereignty set by having proper borders and proper laterals. Now, they appealed to Australia to come to the party and to really renegotiate this so that it was clear what was Australia's and what was Timor's. But unfortunately, we did not come to the party there. So the Timorese called on a, a, a little-known United Nations instrument called the, a compulsory conciliation. Now, it actually hadn't ever been used uh, before, Uh, so it's a first for Timor and a first for Australia. Australia did not want to be party of it and put six objections up, but each objection was overruled and we had to front up for our own, for saving our own face, basically. So that's the process that's been in place the last two years, and it's It's been very successful in one way for the Timorese because that border has been set. Uh, The the sticking point, though, that that means that there could be still difficulty is how the oil and gas resources will be exploited. Now, the the share of the the resources now is um, either 80% to Timor and 20% to Australia. Now, uh, your listeners must remember that all of this, the whole bang lot, is on Timor's side of halfway. Hmm. You know, we're not talking about Australia really giving anything. This is not a matter of generosity at all. But anyway, the, the deal is Timor gets 80% and Australia gets 20%. Or if the Timorese preference for exploiting the oil and gas is done on their soil, then they would get 70% and we would get 30%. Now, the oil companies really want the exploitation to happen in Darwin because it's the structure's there, everything's there, they feel more secure. And in a sense, it's understandable. But from the Timorese point of view, like these people aren't beggars. I've been to Timor many times. You don't find beggars in Timor. They want to do this themselves. They've got three cities planned for the south coast, cities that would um, exploit the... Uh, build the infrastructure to exploit it all. It would mean jobs for them. It would mean having to supply those cities, so advances in agriculture. And... Uh, like, it's a great plan for a little nation. I, I would just wish that Australia and oil companies and anybody else say, let's help to do this. Here are people not putting their hand out. They don't want the 80%. They would prefer with the 70% and do the thing themselves. I mean, that's that's terrific. Uh, so we can't accuse the Timorese of um, just 
you know, sitting back and saying, oh, give me all this money. So, look, it's, um, it's very important, I think, now for Australia to continue to do the right thing now and to ratify this treaty. Now, our uh, Joint Standing Committee on Treaties, this has got to go over to them now, and we we ought to, you know, write to them and contact them. Terrific people in that committee say, look, we need to ratify this, and we need to be seen to be a nation that will continue to help these people. I mean, after all, the, the debt we owe these people from World War II has never begun to be even acknowledged, let alone paid. There, look, there's, there's not another country in the world that lost 40,000 civilians as a direct result of helping 700 of our soldiers. It, you know, it really gets to me and it gets to so many other Australians. You know, there are tens of thousands of Australians beavering away for Timor. They look, they're fantastic. All these little projects we've got going, the friendship groups, and Victoria's terrific on the friendship groups, so many, and I count myself lucky to be among those Australians who, you know, want to do the right thing by people who did the right thing by us. Now, we've got a really good opportunity now. Let's ratify this treaty and not do anything else that would prevent the Timorese from really owning their sovereignty that they've got now and, um, you know, making the life that they want for their children. And Sister Susan, uh, in your experience as someone who's been travelling there for over 20 years, uh, who uh, needs this wealth from Timor-Leste's oil more? The people of Timor-Leste or... <laughs> shareholders in Woodside and uh, Exxon and other oil companies? Well, absolutely. The, the poverty in Timor is, like, it, it is terrible. You know, there's still hunger. Well, they have the hungry months, but there's still starvation in Timor. But the systems have were so degraded. I mean, everything was demolished. Uh, the whole infrastructure of the capitals, well, not up the east so much, but certainly Dili, uh, the, it was 100% destruction of the infrastructure. Uh, uh, now, that's just 18 years ago. Not only have they had to contend with just being a, a poor sort of outpost of Portugal for so long and then um, under the boot of Indonesia, but everything was destroyed in 1999. So they've had a, a huge... They've made huge strides. I'm not, I'm not pretending there are not problems. There are. There mm. really are. But that's where Australia is so much richer. Look, just a couple of years ago, Timor's um, GDP was $2 billion, I think. At the same time, Australia's GDP was $1,500 billion. Mm. Now... I mean, our population's 25 times theirs, but our GDP is far more than 25 times theirs. And they're so close to us. We ought to... So close to us historically and geographically. We ought to see to this that that they're, that the children and the coming generations will um, benefit by these uh, from these resources. And um, let, let's not think that these resources are, are infinite either. We know that the, the, what's going to happen to oil and gas say, in the next twenty years, the next hundred years. Hmm. So, but while it's still a commodity that's worth 
uh, um, helping to improve people's lives, let, uh, let's help the Timorese to use that. Yeah, that's it. I think that the, the first... Um the first movers in terms of moving away from oil and gas should be wealthy countries like Australia. It should be those companies that have already made billions off it. And the last people to move away from oil, I guess the last people to finish producing it, should be poorer countries like Timor-Leste that really need that wealth to, um, you know, to lift up and, and rebuild and, and advance their, their economies. Um, I couldn't agree more. Good on you, yes. And just with, uh, just to finish up, uh, you mentioned like how can people show solidarity? You talked about the friendship groups. Um, how can people support this at the moment and help to make sure that um, the East Timorese get to hang on to their own wealth and, and tell Australia to you know, get their finger out of the pie, like stop trying to steal the wealth of this poor country that needs it so much? Yes. Well, um, uh, I know this is a Victorian... Um I've been hugely impressed with what Victoria has done through local government initiatives and also the friendship groups. Uh, it's different over the rest of Australia, but whatever groups, that you, local groups that people know about uh, or um, uh, even without being in a group at all, uh, you could write to the chair of the Joint Standing Committee on Treaties and make the view known that we need to do this properly to, to hold our head up really in the um, uh, international ar arena. Uh, I mean the allegations of spying have not been totally scotched. There's a new book coming out by Bernard Galeri people might be interested in reading. There's a lot of reading around Kim McGrath's book Crossing the Line it'd make your hair curl really mm. Paul Cleary's Shakedown Australia's Grab for Timor Oil. Uh, Things are written. Frank Brennan's got an excellent article in Eureka Street. Don Rothwell's got stuff on the internet. Damien Kingsbury. Uh, all of these people you can read and say, look, we Australians now are in the box seat. OK, mistakes have been made, but that doesn't dictate that we have to keep making mistakes. Let's pressure our government to say, ratify this treaty and don't do anything else underhand that would make life more difficult than it is for the Timorese. Here, here. All right. Well, um, yeah, we'll, we'll keep following this one. And, uh, yeah, hopefully we can see a, a future where East Timor is, um, yeah, really able to share that wealth around the community and, uh, yeah, rebuild and, and, and advance their uh, their community and, uh, yeah, Australia can get their grubby mitts off it. So thanks heaps for your advocacy and, and your work on this front. And uh, cheers for talking with us this morning. Great. Thanks very much. And good on community radio, I say. Cheers. Great. Thank right. you. Catch okay. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, Sister Susan Connolly there um, talking with us about Timor Leste and the, the uh, new treaty to change the maritime border to the median line instead of where it is now, right on East Timor's doorstep in Australia's um, favour, I guess we'd say. All right, it is one minute past eight. We'll just have a quick announcement and then we're going to go to um, the activist calendar. We will not negotiate with minor native title government or anyone on, on our culture, on, on our land. You know, if people say, oh, you're going to finish up with nothing, well, then so be it. But at least our hearts will tell us that we did not sell out our country and our culture and heritage for a few scungy dollars. 
Subscribe to 3CR so that your dollars support Indigenous voices and the struggle for land justice. For Aboriginal people, the greatest grief of all is seeing the country destroyed. And somewhere along the line, we have to realise that we don't actually have the right to do that, that nothing we've ever done has given us the right to do that. Now, you know where I stand on this, because I'm so simple-minded, I think we've just got to admit that this is an Aboriginal country. Just do it. Alright, welcome back. This is you're on 3CR, it's Green Life Radio, three minutes past eight, and we've got the activist calendar. Alright, so I'm here today to give you the activist calendar. So what's happening tonight is there's going to be a kind of special feminist film night um, featuring uh, two um, kind of double screening of some films about about the all-female Kurdish army in northern Syria, the YPG, and this will be Women at War um, and... Uh, well, no, no, no. Fear Us Woman will be the first documentary, um, and then Woman at War. Um, and so that will be screening at 6.30 with a meal from 6 p.m. at the Resistance Center, Level 5, 407 Swanson Street in the city, opposite RMIT, and it is presented by Green Left Weekly. Um, this Saturday, will be there'll be a rally for refugees in Batman, Bring Them Here. Um, basically, this ra- um, rally has been called by the Refugee Action Collective uh, you know, as an opportunity to build a stronger refugee minute, m- movement and put the ongoing cruelty of indefinite atten- detention on Manus and Nauru into the national spotlight. And that'll be happening at 11.30am at the Northcote Town Hall Centre. Um, that uh, centre, they'll be at 189 High Street in Northcote and it's organised by the Refugee Action Collective. Um, there'll be a film screening, um, War and Peace. Um, it'll be a Finnish uh, Australian documentary. Um, it's a Finnish Australian documentary about the formation and activities of the weather upground movement in the US in the 1960s and 1970s. And that will be happening at 6 pm at the Loop Project Space and Bar 23 Miros Place, Myers Place in the city. And um, yet yeah, they'll be happening um, on Saturday night at 6 pm. There'll be a film screening on Sunday, Stop Adani, A Mighty Force. Um, that will be happening at 12.30 um, at 110 Gray Street in East Melbourne. Um, next Tuesday, this Tuesday, um, on March the 30th, there'll be a forum on challenging misogyny and sexism today. Um, basically, you know, asking the question of how we can fight misogyny and sexism today. It'll feature Sarah Halfway, um, union organiser and co-convener of Geelong um, Socialist Alliance, and Nikki Keating, who is um, being uh, activist involved with the Hospo Voice campaign. And so that'll be happening at 6.30 with meal from 6pm at the Resistance Centre, level 5, 407 Swanson Street. Um, there'll be a forum, Indonesia Today, Dis- Discontent and the Challenge of Radical Politics, um, featuring Max Lane, um, and that'll be happening at 7pm next Tuesday at um, the New International Bookshop from 7pm, which is at Trades Hall, Corner of Ligon and Victoria Streets in Carlton South. Um, from Thursday, March the 15th to Monday the 26th, um, there'll be the Melbourne Queer Film Festival. Um, on Tuesday, March 20th, there'll be Forum Wobbies of the World, Lessons from Struggles of the Past, and then they'll be happening at the New International Bookshop, 7pm on Tuesday the 20th of March, which is at the Shreds Hall. 
There'll be on Wednesday, March the 21st, there'll be a protest, stop the Liberals to $2 billion education cuts, and they'll be happening at the State Library. And on Sunday, the March the 25th, um, there'll be the Walk for Justice for Refugees, at um, which is Palm Sunday at 2pm at the State Library. And yep, that's, I think, pretty much it in terms of the events. Yep. Alright. Cool. Well, I um, might just play a quick announcement and then might have a short news story and then we'll get to Robin Murphy who's going to talk to us about uh, the Jobs for Win project. All right. Uh, if you have got a suitable short news item that we can just get a quick update on and then I might, while you're reading that out, I might get Robin Murphy on the line. All right. So I'm just going to find trying to find a short article. Well, actually, this might be um, this might be an interesting one um, just to read out. Um, I mean, maybe Zane should read this one out because I think you'll have interest in this one. I can't. I'm getting Robin on the line. Oh, you can't. So. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll talk about. Okay, so this is um, basically that there was a, a rally to fix Newcastle's buses um, happening on, happened on March uh, the nineteenth, um, which you know basically had over. Uh, a thousand people, and it comes in the kind of context of the kind of different political campaigns um, to say defend public transport in New South Wales. And there was also uh, there was also another rally um, with over 200, 200 people, you know, marched in Kalgoorlie on February twenty fourth to protest um, the possible parole of a man who deliberately ran down and killed fourteen old uh, Eli Dalty in August two thousand sixteen. Yeah, so that that that's some um, just some two short stories of some um, active kind of resistance that's happening around um, two different issues: Aboriginal rights and um, public transport in New South Wales. Good stuff. All right, I'll just play a quick announcement, and then we'll get Robin Murphy on the line. One of Melbourne's longest-running hospitals, St Vincent's Hospital, is turning 125. They're calling on community to help rising funds to support the vital work of the hospital by participating in a pyjama-themed fun run on Sunday, April 15, at Princess Park in Carlton North. Registrations are now open. For more information, head to stvincentsfunrun.org.au. St Vincent's is a 3CR supporter. All right, welcome back. You're on 3CR. It is 11 minutes past 8, and on the line, uh, it's uh, Jacob Zane here, and we've got a special guest who is Robin Murphy, uh, activist and uh, director, producer, part of the team putting together the Jobs for Women film. Uh, welcome, Robin. Thank you. Morning to everybody. So, Robin, um, can you just give us a very brief, for listeners who have not yet heard about the project, just a brief reintroduction to what the Jobs for Women uh, film is about and what it's documenting? Well, it's a documentary feature film, um, which we're currently making right at the moment, and it tells the story of... Uh, a group of women in Wollongong, which I was part of as well, that took on BHP in the 1980s and uh, and won. It took them 14 and a half years. And um, it was a really important 
struggle and the story needs to be told because there's a lot of lessons that come out of, of their campaign, really good, positive lessons of, um, you know, of, of particularly struggling and collective solidarity and, yeah, so it was about making clear that industries weren't, weren't exempt from anti-discrimination laws. Hmm. Um, BHP had discriminated against women. They were telling us there were no jobs for women, yet they were employing men. Uh, it, it exposed that they had a separate 2,000, over 2,000 women on a waiting list, which they was just gathering dust. And it wasn't until we took them on, the women took on BHP, that this all came out in court. Um, it changed occupational health and safety laws around weight restrictions. It abolished a really archaic uh, Shops and Factories Act, um, which said that women couldn't lift more than 16 kilos to protect our childbearing function. Um, and it was... Um, instrumental in bringing in a safer manual handling code, not just for women, but for men too. So that was another positive outcome. It was um, the first time that anti-discrimination laws were used to take on a class action um, successfully, and many parts of the law were tested, uh, including indirect discrimination. Uh, and as a result of testing a lot of these laws, the... You know, they, it exposed some of the weaknesses in the law, so uh, it led to changes in, in those laws. Um, I think the main part of the campaigns really was about um, the role of migrant women in the campaign and yeah, the importance yeah. of... I, I was going to ask you, uh, so we've just had International Women's Day, and yeah. yeah, I was just hoping you could tell us, because migrant women, women of colour, played a really important role in that campaign, yeah? Yes, absolutely. Couldn't have done it otherwise. It was uh, like a 95% migrant women's campaign. Um, and, you know, I take my hat off to all of the wonderful women out there who, as, you know, coming to Australia, the issues they have with language, um, you know, trying to get involved in communities is just impossible if you don't know the language and... Women stepped forward and got involved in this campaign because it was about the right to work. Very simple, very simple, you know, right that we should all have, and we don't have today even. Um, and those women got active, um, and one of the parts of the campaign which we think is important lessons is that um, information should be in the languages of, of the community and... You know, we, we handed out leaflets, steel works in seven different languages. This is way back in 1980. But because we did that, that then gave ammunition to those women to know what we were doing and to get involved. So, mm. pretty major. That's so cool. And <laughs> um, what, what, I think the short film maybe um, looked at this. What were some of the factors that meant, like, was there a higher percentage or, or a large amount of migrants living in the Illawarra area um, at that time, like, compared oh. to the rest of Sydney? And 
Yeah, look, you know, I mean, <clears throat> I, 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 do, I don't have the figures, but over 50%, well over 50% of the community in the Illawarra is migrant-based, mm. and this was a result. BHP used to go and recruit um, workers, and usually peasant workers from Eastern Europe, like so there was... Macedonia, Turkey, they actually had someone go and sell the place to to um, to underprivileged people in other countries and they wanted brawn, you know, they wanted muscle, they wanted manual labourers and that's what, you know, they, that's what they did hmm. during those times. Yeah, right. <laughs> So, like the the steelworks itself was a big factor in in the migrant community. Yes, well, my mm. uh, you know migrant families came to Wollongong. I, mm. A lot of the women talk about we came to the place where the chimneys were. Yeah, right. Um, because you know we there are a lot of um, <laughs> a lot of chimneys in the steelworks, and the steelworks was a major employer. And they owned the mines and the escarpment. They owned the wharves. So it was really considered a steel town. And so it was totally dominated by BHP's interests. And and as you would expect in those earlier days when, I guess, culture was about family wage, um, it was men working there in mm. the mines, in the steelworks, in metal manufacturing, I mean, you never saw what we might see today. We might take for granted that you know we've got women bus drivers, we've got you know women train drivers, we've got women doing all sorts of work in what were male dominated industries. And our campaign, I think, was um, the big campaign that broke the camel's back, so to speak, in terms of changing uh, attitudes about and, and changing laws that stop women from working in male-dominated industries. Hmm. Now, uh, I think it was 2015 you put out the short film. Yes, The Women Who Were Never There. Okay, and this is a fundraiser to to do what you're, what you're currently doing, which is to turn it into a full-length feature film. Which, yes. Which tells this story, but not as a sort of, just as a documentary, but as a, as a living um, uh, human narrative, I guess you would say. Yeah, look, the what we're making, the feature film, um, is a compilation of the women talking about their experiences um, as migrant women, as women trying to get work, as women who were working in sweatshops and, you know, really non-unionised, bad conditions, um, piece work. So the women tell their stories. Um, we do some reenactments of key moments in the campaign, like the tent embassy that we set up outside the employment office of BHP. Mm. And we're also going. We're in the middle of collecting archival footage that spans that time of the campaign. So it will be a compilation of three major methods of. Um, of portraying the story through the eyes of the women and you know, the activists. Yeah, so, so we're, right now um, we've pretty much finished doing our interviews um, and some of those are in the languages 
that the women speak, and, and so we will need to um, you know, ensure that they're translated into English as well. Um, so we've done all of that. We've done our reenactment of Tent Embassy, and uh, we've started editing. So it's pretty exciting. I'm hoping that we'll be finished the bulk of it by the end of this year. Yeah, deadly. And you just <laughs> had a um, interview, uh, not an interview. You had a fundraiser. Was it last week? Yes. How did that go? Fantastic. Um, now I, this is this was really exciting for us because Sally McManus. Uh, spoke at our fundraiser, so it was a, a, absolutely wonderful to get the backing of the ACTU. Mm. Um, and on top of that, the union that we used to be members of was in the 1980s and 90s was called the Federated Iron Workers Association. Nice. It's now the Australian Workers Union, and they initiated this fundraiser, um, the National Executive. Um, and they've been quite proactive in supporting us. I mean, until we went and told them the story, they hadn't realised just what an impact our campaign had. And so, yeah, we, I think we raised about $12,000 last week, or they did for us, so we're very happy with that. Oh, that's brilliant. What was yeah. the process there with the AWU? Like, did you go to a branch meeting or, or something and sort of pitch the film to them and say this is an important part of your history and you should sort of support yeah. this? Yeah, absolutely, Zane. We, that's exactly what we did. We, we actually knocked on the national office door and spoke to the national office officials and um, they were gobsmacked, you know. <laughs> Um, and they're very interested in helping us along the way with the with the film, um, and also in encouraging other unions to support the making of the film because it's it's not something that's going to be funded by Hollywood, mm. um, and um, you know we still need to raise a little bit of money to uh, do things like the sound mix and um, well actually the whole soundtrack archives for example cost thirty dollars per second. So Wow. I know it's Where it's, is this which is this the National Archives or Yes, there's a number of sources. There's um but unfortunately most of the archives now belong to, you know, mega companies, um like you know, like Fairfax Murdoch sort of enterprises and um but there there are some in the national Film and Sound Archives, and we've got someone working on that right at the moment. So it's yeah, yeah it's right. going to be quite a powerful little film when we we get it finished. Yeah, oh, I'm super excited. The short yeah. film is is really good. I'm um, I'm so excited. I'm <laughs> I'm a big fan of Rocking the Foundations by Pat Fisk about the BLS yes. Green Bands. Yes, and I feel like this is going to be really up there with rocking the foundation so it'll be we hope so oh. we hope so and we have i should let you know the awu has actually initiated a fundraising online fundraiser called gofundme okay so if there are you know anyone can donate to that so we um they're promoting that within the union and i think within the actu as well um, so we're hoping that will 
progress to we've got a website and a Facebook site which will show people the links to funding to yeah right and have you been like when this launches how have, have you started thinking about how that's going to happen like is this something we can expect to see in like mainstream cinemas we we don't well i guess i haven't been working on that we've got someone else looking at distribution hmm. but um we'll certainly be having premieres in all major towns anyone that um wants to see the film will will um we can we'll help organize uh, screenings, as we did with the women who were never there. Um, that was on a much smaller scale. So we'll be hoping that it will be taken up by mainstream film distributors. But at this stage, we're still focusing on getting the film finished um, and finishing the editing and doing the soundtrack and the sound mix and the archives. Mm. But, yeah, look, I mean, these days a lot of people download things, so... Yeah, we'll look right. at the at you know online distribution as well. Yeah, that would be fantastic. Yeah, having it on uh, popular available uh, streaming services. Yeah, yeah. And so, are you looking for musicians at the moment, or what's? Well, actually, that's another a bit of excitement that's coming up. Probably around once we've got a a rough cut. Of, a, of an edit together. We're hoping the timeline at the moment is around about July. Um, we're hoping to put the word out there to particularly young women performers. We want to try and find uh, a song that really reflects the film. Mm. Um, so that's a big ask and lots of imagination. Um, and we'll be putting that out through our Facebook site. So, and we're also negotiating with <clears throat> members of the Illawarra Folk Club, um, local musicians of the Wollongong area, to put together some new music that would reflect the Macedonian, Turkish, Chilean, Spanish, Greek flavours of our campaign. So that's pretty exciting too. Yeah, cool. That's great. All right. There's this there's this punk trio from Melbourne called Cable Ties. Cable Ties. I'm going to like draw their attention to your film. It's yeah. like, totally just fishing for a band, but I reckon some of their music could be awesome on uh, okay. the score if if they're up for it. There's some awesome all female artists or bands out there at the moment. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, it, it's. You know, we want it to be really, you know, I I think the, um, the message of this film, <clears throat> when it's made, will be, look, you can do things, you can change injustices, you can stick together, you can unite and forge links with lots of people, and, and we can make, you know, we can do it. Um, so, mm. you know, anyone that, likes to put that out there, you know, we'll be really interested, but not right now. <laughs> <laughs> Just let us get get um, the editing done first, the, the rough edit, and um, then, you know, maybe we can talk again. <laughs> Wicked. All right, well, we're going to wrap it up. Beyond okay. Zero Emissions are coming in. Thanks so much, Robin. Yes, thank you very All much, right. Robin. And, uh, yeah, we'll keep an eye on that. That's so exciting.
right. Thanks, Aidan. Take it easy. Cheers. All right. Uh, Robin Murphy there, uh, talking about the Jobs for Women film. All right. We're going to get out of here so Beyond Zero Emissions can do their show. Thanks again for listening. This has been Green Left Radio, and you're on 3CR. Have an excellent Labor Day long weekend. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show... And interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Start sometime. What better place than here?